Who is wise and understanding among you? By his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. This is not the wisdom that comes down from above, but is earthly, unspiritual, demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder and every vile practice. But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. And a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. Thus reads the words of the Lord. You may be seated. Well, um, again, like I said, it's a great joy of mine to have the opportunity to be here again. Um, Again, uh, I'm amazed by God's uh, providence in orchestrating what he would have teach us. Uh, It was a number of months ago after my last sermon, Pastor Todd encouraged me to go ahead and pick a a section and begin working on it uh, just for whenever the opportunity came up. And that was well before we were in the Beatitudes, and Pastor Todd's been preaching through the Beatitudes and teaching us that. And then as I was studying this section from James chapter 3, I was going, my goodness, this James is teaching me the same thing that Jesus has been teaching me. And then I learned from Pastor Todd that, yes, James is considered an exposition of the Sermon on the Mount. So uh, we are in the same vein. We're not leaving, even though we're not in the Beatitudes today, um, and we don't have Pastor Todd preaching today. We are not leaving the same spiritual stream of, of nourishment that we've been under these past few months. So as I begin this, um, just a quick illustration. Um, Again, uh, last time I used sort of a literary illustration, and I use the same again. Uh, I've had the the joy and pleasure to read with my kids from time to time, and lately we've been reading the book Black Beauty by Anna Sewell, and uh, it's a great book. It's one of the classics, Uh, and of course she writes uh, really kind of, uh, and I believe she was a, a woman of faith, but she writes as someone who is really an advocate for for uh, uh, ethical treatment of animals, really ethical treatment of, of, of everybody and everything, but especially horses. And when you read that book, it's fascinating for me as a non-horse person, a non-country person reading the book, it's fascinating to hear, you know, what it's like to take care of the horses, you know, such as the stable hand who was uh, lazy and failed to sweep out the stable. And so it got moldy and the horse's hoofs started rotting, all sorts of little things. But there was one passage that really stuck out to me because I was studying this passage as I, as I was reading uh, through this with the kids. And uh, it's a section that's narrated from the horse himself. It, it, the horse, his name is Black Beauty because he's this beautiful big black horse. And he describes how he goes to a new owner. And this woman, apparently in the 19th century or in times past, it was um, sort of fashionable to hook what was called bearing reins up to your horses, and that would cause their necks to be kept held up high. So in everything that they did, their, their heads were high and regal and, and uh, you know, beautiful looking. Uh, but of course, this is an unnatural way for the horse to act and behave. And Beauty talks about how he's pulled up on these bearing reins and the, the lady of the state wants, you know, can't, be, can't bear to be seen with a horse with its head down. And he's trying to go up a hill and he can't, put his, he can't put his back into it. He can't put his head down. And it strains his body and it, 
and the, the bit causes his mouth to foam, and he, he's under this sort of cruel treatment for months and months, and he talks about how it made him dispirited and, and, uh, and just uh, very depressed being under this yoke, right? And so this is an illustration I bring for all of you, that as we look at this passage, James 3, verses 13 through 18, and of course the title that I've given this is uh, really an imperative for us, in meekness, sow a harvest of righteousness. Um, and so really this picture of the bearing reins for black beauty is a picture of the sin of pride that is slung onto the, the lives and the spirits of us humans. But of course it's not primarily someone else who has put this sinful rein on us. It is ourselves who has uh, slung ourselves with sin and choose to embrace sin in our hearts. Uh, and no doubt we are oppressed by the world and by the devil as well, but primarily this is a reign that we have uh, put over ourselves uh, in the sin of our pride. So I want you to keep that in mind as we uh, study this passage together, uh, that illustration. So an overview of this, of what I will teach this morning, our passage naturally breaks out into three different sections. And so we have in the first section, we're going to learn how true wisdom is shown, how true wisdom is shown. And that's in verse 13. Then in verses 14 and through 16, we're going to see the root and the fruit of false wisdom, the root and the fruit of false wisdom. And then lastly, in verses 17 through 18, we're going to see the harvest of true wisdom, or you could also call it the root and fruit of true wisdom because it very much mirrors the prior section. And when we uh, teach these, these passages and preach these passages, we always want to have a main point that we're focusing at. So, so this is what I want you to take away with uh, as you think about this passage throughout your week and throughout your life, and it is this. Again, like my title, it's an imperative, it's a command. All of us, we must seek the wisdom that comes from Christ alone in humility and peace, right? Whether we are a believer or an unbeliever today, this is what we must seek, the wisdom that comes from Christ alone in humility and peace. So let's begin this and look at how true wisdom is shown. And we're going to look at chapter, uh, excuse me, verse 13 the first verse of our passage. And so in the beginning, James starts out with a rhetorical question. He confronts us with this rhetorical question. He asks us, he says, who is wise and understanding among you? Now, of course, James, he was writing to the church that was uh, in the 12 tribes of the dispersion, it says in the first chapter. Um, but that obviously applies to the church universal. He had a church that he... Um, that he shepherded there in Jerusalem. He probably was the first Christian pastor uh, ministering the first Christian church um, for years and years. But then he wrote this letter that was to the 12 tribes in the dispersion. But of course, that applies to the church universal. That applies to the, This applies to the church throughout all the ages and really to, to humanity throughout all, of the, all the ages. So this is what he's confronting with us with is this rhetorical question. And he says, who is wise and understanding among you? Now, he uses basically wisdom and knowledge together. He puts them together, right? Who is wise and understanding? Uh, this is what he means by this. He says, 
are you, he's basically saying, are you truly able to apply what you know about God in your Christian walk in order to live out the best life possible, right? We, we know the difference between knowledge and wisdom, don't we? Having knowledge is really just having facts and data. It's really just retention. Having knowledge is just knowing how something works or, you know, having information about it. But just because you have knowledge, that doesn't necessarily mean you're going to act in wisdom with that knowledge, does it? No, of course not. Wisdom then is using your knowledge for the best outcome possible. So wisdom really is application. Wisdom really is living out your life in light of the knowledge that you have and living it out in a godly way. So there's a couple of implications, aren't there, to this rhetorical question that James asked us, who is wise and understanding among you? We know that rhetorical questions are asked so that they will have impact. We know what the answer to this is. Um, the, the main implication is that really there aren't many who actually do this, right? It's a rare person who is truly wise and understanding to live out their, their Christian life um, consistently and faithfully. But I believe that James, you know, he also is pointing to this fact that not many do this, not many actually live this way because of the context of what he's just written about. So if we look and we uh, look up in our chapter in James chapter 3 to the beginning of that chapter, what has he been talking about? Well, he says this, if we look at verses 1 and 2, he says, Not many of you should become teachers, my brothers, for you know that we who teach will be judged with greater strictness. Now, this is uh, pretty evident as well. You know, those who teach will be judged with greater strictness. There's a greater responsibility. There's a bigger burden that is laid on the shoulders of those who are called to preach and teach. Um, and this has been convicting in my life as I've felt the desire to stand and proclaim God's word. And it's convicting. Uh, I've heard the axiom before that uh, it's better to be taught than to teach. And that's something that I've had to remind myself of. It's better to be taught than to teach. And I believe this verse uh, bears that out. But of course, he says, not many of you, right? So he's looking at the, at, uh, the, the large group here. Let's look at uh, verses 5 through 10 in chapter 3. So if we go down a little bit, he's continuing to talk. And of course, he gives the example of uh, bits and horses' mouths and, and things like that. But when we get to chapter 5, he's, or excuse me, verse 5, he's talking about the tongue. And he says this, so also the tongue is a small member, yet it boasts of great things. How great a forest is set ablaze by such a small fire. And the tongue is a fire, a world of unrighteousness. The tongue is set among our members, staining the whole body, setting on fire the entire course of life and set on fire by hell. For every kind of beast and bird of reptile and sea creature can be tamed and has been tamed by mankind. But no human being can tame the tongue. It is a restless evil full of deadly poison. With it, we bless our Lord and Father, and with it, we curse people who are made in the likeness of God. This is the hypocrisy he's pointing to 
that the tongue often leads us to. And finally, in verse 10, he, he says, from the same mouth come blessing and cursing. My brothers, these things ought not to be so. And so it is really this world of unrighteousness that Paul gives us a, a vision of that we are all liable to, and that happens rampantly throughout uh, humanity. And it's within the context of this that he then says, who is wise? Who is wise? Are you really wise and understanding? Do you truly live out your Christian life in light of the knowledge of the gospel that you had, that you have? Now, one implication of James's rhetorical question is, of course, not many actually live this out. But the other implication is that actually, even though not many live this out, most of us, in fact, if not all of us, actually do claim to have wisdom and understanding, don't we? Now, we all do this. We all have to do this in certain ways. We all, as human beings in this world, have to have some understanding of this world, some knowledge of how to live, some worldview from which we base our decisions, don't we? We don't just live in a vacuum. We, we aren't just you know, operating by fate and chance. We make decisions based on what we know, and we, will, we live out each of our individual lives from our values. That's why worldview is so important. And of course, everyone does this, whether you're a believer in Jesus, whether you're an unbeliever in Jesus. And we all make these claims. Now, for those who profess Christ, how do we do this? Well, we profess Christ, don't we? Now, this is not a bad thing. We must do this. We must profess Christ. We must profess our faith. We have statements of faith and, and things that summarize the meaning of, of Christianity. Um, but we have to make this, uh, make this claim. Uh, there's other ways that, that Christians do it. Sometimes we wear Christian shirts or hats. Um, I, have, I have a hat that says 1684 on it, and that's the, that means my, the confession of faith that I believe in, right? And I walk around and people go, what does that mean? Well, I get to tell them about my faith a little bit. Um, you know, we, we put bumper stickers on our cars. We read our Bibles in public. We witness to people. We make this claim. We all must make this claim to wisdom. And aren't we saying we're right, right? We're saying th this is the truth. This is the way to live. And we're making that claim. Now, do non-Christians make claims in similar ways? Of course they do. They just profess different beliefs, right? They wear different, uh, you know, scriptures, as it were, on their sleeves and on their bodies and on their cars. Sometimes they fly different flags in their yards than what Christians might fly in their yards. Right? But we have to recognize that we all make this claim. And what James is, is confronting us here is he's confronting everyone. The, the true message of the Bible is a great leveler, right? There aren't sides. There aren't political sides when it comes to the biblical message. The biblical message is its own side, and you must side with it or you're with the world. Okay, so let's then look at what his answer is. What's his answer to his rhetorical question? He says this, By his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. Let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. So he's saying, okay, you claim wisdom and you claim truth to your life from which you live, then prove it. Prove your claim to true wisdom and right knowledge by your virtuous way of life. Now, meekness is key here. 
as we've been learning uh, through the Beatitudes, um, true wisdom only comes through meekness because he says, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom, right? Not in the boasting of wisdom, not in worldly wisdom, but in the meekness of wisdom. Meekness means mildness of disposition, gentleness of spirit. This is the same Greek word in Matthew 5, 5, essentially the same, where Jesus says, blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. And of course, we've been blessed to sit under that teaching for a number of months now. One of my study Bibles said this, the sign of true wisdom is a gentle spirit, right? Not boasting, but a gentle spirit. So here's another axiom for you. Wisdom begets humility. Foolishness begets arrogance. So, of course, this is the whole point of what James is trying to say throughout his whole letter. We're going to do a quick flyover. Turn with me to chapter 1, James chapter 1, verses 26 and 27. I'm not pulling out every, every point that he makes. There's a very famous one in here where he says, be doers of the word. But look at this, chapter 1, verse 26 and 27. If anyone thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue, but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. Religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. Do you hear the action in that? Do you hear the application of wisdom based on knowledge there? To visit orphans and widows in their affliction. Turn now to chapter 2, verse 8, or just look over on the same page, 2 verse 8. If you really fulfill the royal law according to the scripture, quote, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing well. Good. If you really fulfill it. Now, verse 12 in chapter 2, he says, So speak and so act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. Not so think and so judge, but so speak and so act. Now, chapter 4, verse 17, continuing our quick flyover of what James is really trying to drive at in this whole letter. So whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is sin. And lastly, the last two verses of the, of the letter, chapter 5, verses 19 and 20. My brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, that's application, that's action. Let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. So this is what James is driving at in his whole letter. Be doers of the word. Prove your knowledge and wisdom by the actions, by the virtuous way in which you live your life. And of course, obedience has been lovingly commanded from the Father in heaven since the beginning. Deuteronomy is an amazing book to study when it comes to what God has, has commanded us because he talks many times about the law being written in our hearts. And of course, that's a vision of regeneration being born again from above. But in Deuteronomy 6, verses 1 and 2, Moses wrote this, Now this is the commandment, the statutes and the rules that the Lord your God commanded me to teach you, that you may do them 
in the land to which you are going over to possess it, that you may fear the Lord your God, you and your son and your son's son, by keeping all his statutes and his commandments, which I command you all the days of your life, and that your days may be long. Now, when you think about this promise that your days may be long, we will see at the end of our study here the harvest of righteousness that comes from pursuing true wisdom. But of course, meekness is absolutely key. Meekness is essential here. There there are two different types of wisdom, aren't there? There's a worldly wisdom, a wisdom that is not rooted in Christ, a wisdom that, that comes outside of Christ. And ultimately, that wisdom is worthless. But there's also a godly wisdom. It, it's interesting, I, as an illustration here, I once ran into a uh, YouTube influencer of sorts. He was sort of this cowboy guy that sat with his hat in a chair out in the woods, and he would smoke a cigar, and they'd film him, and he'd tell stories. And I thought, man, I'm in my happy place now. This guy's really cool. Get to hear stories of an old wrangler and, you know, cool guy. And he professed to be a Christian. He put on his bio, I'm a Christian, I'm a believer, you know, and he would talk about wisdom and literature and all these really cool things, kind of a cowboy poet sort of guy. But he would never mention Jesus in his talks. I listened to three or four of them. Where's Jesus in all of this? Like, you're wise. He's clearly helping people. There's all these people in the comments. Thank you so much. You helped my life. You got me out of a pickle. All these things. He had all this wisdom. So I wrote him and I said, hey, could you do a talk on your faith? I'd love to hear more about what you really believe and who Jesus is to you. You know, that would be awesome. Uh, You're clearly a Christian. You clearly are wise. He said, oh, funny you should ask. You know, I'm going to drop one tomorrow morning. I'm talking about this very issue. Oh, great. You know, I was so excited. You know, I was waiting. Um, You can probably imagine what happened. Uh, (laughs) He, in his little talk, he said, look, um, yeah, I'm here to help provide wisdom, but I'm not going to bring Jesus into this. The moment you do that, you start turning everyone off. You start making everybody mad. You know, I'm a Christian. He says, I'm a Christian. I get it. I've been in the ministry. I, you know, but a lot of the Christians I know, they're some of the biggest knuckleheads I've ever known, right? You know, maybe sometimes that's not entirely off. But, you know, he, he basically refused to, to use his platform and to speak about Christ. Now, he, get, he gets to choose what he wants to do. But at that point, I had to say, you know what? I, my conscience won't let me listen to him anymore. This is not a godly wisdom. This is a worldly wisdom, and it's in the guise of, of godliness. So we must be careful. So when we go back to James chapter 3, let's continue We saw how true wisdom is to be shown. Let's look now at the root and fruit of false wisdom. In chapter 3, verse 14, he says, But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. So now he gives us a transition. He says, but. He's turning 180 degrees away from this vision of meekness, the wisdom, uh, the meekness and wisdom, wisdom and meekness. And he's turning into, to show us that really a world of unrighteousness. Now, when he says, if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, when he uses the word bitter in the Greek, that means harsh or virulent, like a virulent disease. The idea is that it's piercing, sharp, pungent, acrid. The root of the Greek word means to cut or to prick. 
This made me think of sometimes I use a safety pin in my tie, behind my tie to keep it together. And I'm always paranoid when I'm pushing through that safety pin on the other side. Is it going to stick my thumb? And that little pinprick can cause a world of hurt, right? That's the idea here. He's used this word, bitter, the Greek word, just above in, in verse 11. He said, does a spring pour forth from the same opening both fresh water and salt water? Salt water is that word bitter. You can't drink that water. That water will make you sick or kill you, right? So that's what he means by bitter. Now he says jealousy. This, the, you have jealousy, which is a bitter jealousy, but here's what he means by jealousy. Envious and contentious rivalry. Now, this Greek word is also used for the, for the word zeal. And in John chapter 2, verse 17, it had said, his disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. Now, that's the same Greek word for, that's, you, that's translated as jealousy here. But of course, that was when Jesus was cleansing the temple and driving out the money changers who had made his father's house a house of trade. That was horrible sin, abomination that they were, uh, that they were doing there. But of course, Jesus' jealousy was a holy jealousy. He was angry, but he was not sinning, and he was driving them out. But is our jealousy a holy jealousy? No, it's this bitter, sharp, pungent, acrid jealousy. And he says selfish ambition. If you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition, this is what the dictionary for the Greek word selfish ambition, a partisan and factious spirit that does not disdain low acts does not disdain low acts. So this is partisanship. We see this in politics, don't we? Imagine the Greek world of politicking and the Roman world of politicking. I was thinking of the, I don't know my Roman history too well, but I believe there was an emperor who was stabbed to death right there in the Senate, right? It was brutal. It was vicious. Um, I'm also reminded of the, um, the TV series that had Kevin Spacey in it before he fell out of favor, whatever, who cares? But there was a movie called, or a series called House of Cards, right? And this, this vice president was ruthlessly trying to claw to the top, and he would do anything it took to become president of the most powerful country in the world, and he even murdered people to get there, right, in secret. That's the idea here behind this selfish ambition. Now, he's saying, if you have these sins, but these aren't just sins on the surface. These aren't just things that perhaps we're dealing with every once in a while, or just, you know, they're not a bit that much of a problem. He's saying if these are in your hearts, right? Now, we have to understand that when the Bible uses the term heart, it doesn't just mean an idea, you know, a belief, an emotion. This is something that's deeply rooted into who you are. The word heart, biblically, really means the totality of who a person is, right? It's the spiritual emotional and psychological seat of a person. It's, it's from which everything arises of who we are, right? I talked about our worldview and how we make decisions based on our worldview. Well, our, our worldview is rooted deep into our hearts. So you can imagine, say, a vein of marble that's in the earth, this beautiful marbled precious stone that goes all the way down to the foundations of the earth, right? Just above where the magma is. And but instead of a precious stone that's rooted all the way down, it's this horrible, malignant, poisonous substance 
That's the idea that we're getting here. This, these sins are deeply rooted in us, and we have to take them seriously. So when we see the Bible call out sins like this, we have to take stock. We can't pass over them. And we have to ask, are these in our hearts? Do we ever see these in our life? Do these happen in the church? Let's turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 5. Have these sins ever cropped up in the church? Surely not, right? Surely believers or those who profess belief in Christ, they would never act this way. Well, Paul ran into this in the church in Corinth. Chapter 5 of 1 Corinthians verse 1, he says, It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you and of a kind that is not tolerated even among pagans. For a man has his father's wife, and you are what? You are arrogant. Ought, not, ought you not rather to mourn? Let him who has done this be removed from among you. And then in verse 6, he says, Your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump, as you really are unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Let us therefore celebrate the festival, not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. So that's what we see here is boasting is how these sins typically come about, don't they? It's natural. If, if a person has self at the center and is, uh, has selfish ambition and bitter jealousy in their hearts, they're going to defend themselves with boasting, with defensiveness. It's going to be natural. So then let's look at the root. What's the root of this false wisdom then? Verse 15, back to James chapter 3. Verse 15, James says, this is not the wisdom that comes down from above, but is earthly, unspiritual, demonic. Now, earthly, when he says this, he means wisdom that only comes from man. Wisdom that only comes from this world, from this realm. Therefore, it's going to be limited by nature, this wisdom. It's going to be liable to error. Unspiritual means natural, sensual. The dictionary says this, a nature subject to passions and appetites. Is God's nature subject to passions and appetites? Of course not, but we can't avoid that if we're following our own human-made wisdom. And lastly, demonic, also translated as devilish, resembling or proceeding from an evil spirit. Demon-like. So if you're engaging in this behavior, you're acting in a man-centered way, devoid of the Spirit of God, and behaving like a demon. Worst-case scenario, you're acting like a demon, or I should say best-case scenario, you're acting like a demon. Worst case, you're actually spurred on and instigated by demons, by demonic forces. Now, of course, a believer, someone who is truly in Christ, cannot be possessed by a demon, because he, ha he or she has the Spirit of God living in them. But they can be oppressed by a demon, right? P Paul talks about the uh, fiery darts that Satan sends our way, and we must guard against them with the armor of God. 
But if you're an unbeliever, that, that is a danger that you can actually, in absolute worst case scenario, be possessed by a demon and be truly inspired and spurred on by demonic uh, powers. Now, was there anyone in our Bibles who acted like a demon? Let's turn to Genesis chapter 3. Let's go back to the beginning where all these problems began with our first parents. And in Genesis chapter 3, there's a word, a specific word that I want to point out, and you probably already know which word. Genesis 3 verse 6, So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate, and she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. So she saw that the tree was to be desired to make one wise. Now, was this a worldly wisdom or was this a heavenly wisdom that she was perceiving? It's clearly a worldly wisdom. It was clearly quite literally a demonic wisdom because Satan had just deceived her. He had just talked to her and entrapped her into this. And so her supposed wisdom that she was seeking after was a demonic wisdom. Now let's look at someone in the New Testament, Matthew 16, verses 21 through 23. I should have thought of this one right off when I was studying, but then I stumbled into it and honestly was just shocked. I was shocked in the, the, what had happened, but also shocked that I didn't remember it. I didn't recall it when I thought of demonic wisdom. Matthew 16, verse 21, from that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him saying, far be it from you, Lord, this shall never happen to you. But he being Jesus turned and said to Peter, get behind me, Satan, You are a hindrance to me, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Now, it's interesting. We often chuckle when we hear about Jesus or Peter being rebuked by Jesus. But imagine how devastating this must have been for Peter. He clearly loved the Lord. He clearly was saved here. And yet he was acting in a worldly way, in in a demonic way. He said, you're a hindrance to me. He called him Satan. He must have been crushed. I know I would have been. It's, it's amazing. But that's what we must guard against. So those are two visions of what demonic wisdom looks like and what we can fall into. Now, we've been looking at a lot of darkness, a lot of heavy stuff, but often the Bible doesn't leave us there, does it? We have a world of righteousness and a world of light that James is going to turn us to right now. So praise God, there is hope and there is light to look to. So then, we're going to turn to verse 17. We're going to look at the harvest of true wisdom. This is the root of true wisdom. 
verse 17, he says, but the wisdom from above, but the wisdom from above. So he's turning yet again, and he gives us this transitional word. And what he's saying is that true wisdom only comes from heaven. It only comes from God and Christ. So if you look at in James chapter 1, verse 17, James says there, every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. So God is the source of truth. 1 John 1.5 says, God is light. In him is no darkness. Psalm 119.160 says, the sum of God's word is truth. In Proverbs 12.12, 12, lying lips are an abomination to the Lord, but those who act faithfully are his delight. Now, wisdom comes from Christ, and that through the ministry of the gospel. That's something we have to recognize. Let's look at together, turning again to Colossians chapter 2, verses 1 and 3. Back a little bit. Colossians 2, verses 1 and 3, 1 through 3. Paul is writing to the, another church here, the church at Colossae. And he says this, For I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you and for those at Laodicea, and for all who have not seen me face to face, that their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love, to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding in the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. So, Really, it is Christ who is the source of our wisdom and that being applied through the ministry of the gospel. That's an amazing thing. In order to see how Christ is our wisdom and the source of wisdom, we have to see who he really is. And the Bible doesn't hold that back from us, thank goodness. Um, we're, we don't have to go, we're not going to go over this, but I'm going to summarize for you an amazing passage about Jesus, which is in the beginning of the letter to the Hebrews in chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. So to summarize what we see of who Jesus is there, we see this, that Jesus spoke to us. He came and he gave us wisdom and he gave us truth, and ultimately he is the source of Scripture, inspired Scripture that, that helps us in our Christian walk and is the, what we need in our Christian walk. Uh, Jesus is the heir of all things. The universe belongs to Jesus. It says that he is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. Jesus is God. That's what it means by that. And we will all fall down before him. He upholds the universe. His will keeps us alive each and every second. He made purification for our sins. His atonement on the cross makes us right before God when we're united to him through faith. That's justification and sanctification, his his atonement makes purification for our sins. So we can be right before God positionally and over time grow in holiness. And then he sat down at the right hand of majesty. So Jesus is an amazing God and Savior. And so what we see here in verse 17, the second part of verse 17, so if we go back to James chapter 3. 
It says, the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. Now, these are all qualities that, that are applicable directly to the person and the work of Christ himself. Scripture would prove out each one of these. There's seven or eight of them. And these are all qualities we must pursue. To quickly go through them, we see that the wisdom from above is first pure. This means innocent, free from selfish motives, and done for God's glory. Peaceable, not only operating in a peaceful way, but is easily calmed, seeks peace and harmony. Someone who is peaceable will abhor chaos and pain. Gentle, someone who's gentle is equitable, fair, mild. They seek the good of all involved at all times. Open to reason, easily obeys, compliant. The King James says, easy to be entreated. I had to look up the word entreat. (laughs) It means conduct towards, deal with, use. Someone who is easy to work with. Have you ever at your job had a coworker who was not easy to work with? Nobody likes working with someone like that. Full of mercy. This means kindness and goodwill towards the miserable with a desire to relieve them. Forgives easily and doesn't hold offenses. Full of good fruits. This is the opposite of the worthless fruits that we saw in verse 16. He had said, for where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder in every vile practice. That vile practice, every vile practice means every worthless work. The emphasis is not even so much on the malignancy of that evil, but just the utter worthlessness of it. It ought to be destroyed and thrown away because it not only is evil, it's just completely worthless and causes pain and destruction. Right? And then impartial and sincere. This is the opposite of the double-mindedness and hypocrisy that James talks about. This means unwavering and without uncertainty. This is someone who has integrity and wholeness. That's what the wisdom from above is all about. So when we see here, now moving on to the last verse, James says, a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. Now this is essentially the uh, the understanding in the Bible that you reap what you sow, right? This is a general principle that is true in the Bible. Now, there is an exception to that. When God's grace breaks into our lives and gives us the gift of repentance and faith, but generally we reap what we sow. So Galatians 6.8 says, For the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption. But the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. So our rewards are now, but they're also in heaven. When we seek a harvest of righteousness, when we in meekness sow a harvest of righteousness, the person who is practicing these qualities, these fruits of the wisdom from above, or this is what I read in one of my resources, Those who reap this fruit are those who by their labors have fitted their souls to obtain eternal life. So that's what we must seek. And of course, the key is to seek in meekness and peace. In the third beatitude, we saw meekness. Matthew 5, 5, blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. 
And then in Matthew 5, 9, the seventh beatitude, we see, blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. The meekness is the inward reality, as Pastor Todd has been teaching us. And of course, just last week, we heard about the peacemakers, and that's the outward reality of being meek. So when you are truly meek, by nature, you are peaceable, and that impacts the world around you. So let's bring this to conclusion. I want to wrap all of this up, this whole passage, and what James is wanting to teach us by three points quickly. Human rebellion, the glory and wisdom of Christ, and our salvation. So in his devotional uh, by David Gibson, which is on the book of James, his devotional is called Radically Whole. He writes this about human rebellion and pride. He says, when God says, love your neighbor as yourself, he has the right to say it. And he has the right to say that action is the best thing for me and for him or her. Who am I to say to God, no thanks, you take a seat, your honor, I'll decide. Who am I to take the place of God and judge my neighbor? The very essence of pride is deicide, killing God, replacing God. It is the ultimate coup, the definitive act of rebellion, not just tearing up the rule book, the law, but replacing the one who gave it, end quote. So that's human rebellion, ultimately, is replacing God, killing God effectively in our own lives. But we have to look at the glory and wisdom of Christ. We must keep him before our eyes all the time if we're to be transformed and saved. We saw who he is in Hebrews 1. And we see in this passage, he is pure, peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. Now, our salvation Think back to the bearing reins that I talked about with Black Beauty where the head of the horse is unnaturally held up high and how we do that through our sin. We sling ourselves with the reins of sin. But we have to cast off this yoke of slavery. We must become whole in Christ. We must seek the wisdom that comes from Christ alone in meekness and peace. The horses were yoked by man. We yoke ourselves. But make no bones about it, there will be a yoke over our lives. Each and one of us, each and every one of us, we will be under some authority. The real question is, which yoke do you want over your soul, over your life, your mind, and your body? Do you want that of sin and death and destruction? Or do you want the yoke of Christ, which is freedom? So Galatians 5.1, it says this, for freedom... Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. Let's turn finally, two more passages in James as our final exhortation and remembrance for this teaching today. James chapter 1, verse 21. I talked earlier about how the wisdom of Christ is applied and, and mediated through the ministry of the gospel, the ministry of his word. James 1, verse 21, he says to us today, he says, Therefore, put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word. 
That's what you are hearing today. That's what you're hearing right now is the implanted word of God. And he says this, which is able to save your souls. Now, chapter 4, verses 4 through 10. We've heard this recently. You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Or do you suppose that it is to no purpose that the scripture says he yearns jealously over the spirit that he has made to dwell in us? But he gives more peace. Therefore, it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves, therefore, to God. Resist the devil, and he will flee from you. Draw near to God, and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will exalt you. Let me pray. Oh, Father in heaven, we are so grateful for the opportunity to hear your word, to proclaim your word, to sit under your word, and to stand for your word. You do give more grace, oh God, and we are so grateful for that. I pray for anyone who is not in Christ today hearing this, Perhaps they outwardly profess to not be with Christ. They would never uh, knowingly uh, be associated with Jesus' name. Or perhaps some of us are sitting here today and we do profess to be with Christ. But Lord, we know that we haven't made you Lord of our lives. We haven't submitted ourselves to your yoke of freedom and rooted you deep in our hearts, the inner core of our being. Lord, I pray for those people to be saved today, to be convicted, to be born again, to be converted so that they can live their life in freedom for you and forever in heaven with you. For those of us who are in Christ with you, Lord, I pray that you continue to sanctify us. Um, Lord, I pray that you uh, confront us the way you confronted Peter. It may be painful, but ultimately you love us, Lord, and you want us conformed to your image. You want us not hindering you. You want us not dabbling with worldly ways, but Lord, you want us to live in righteousness and sow a harvest of righteousness in meekness and peace. So Lord, bless us today. and We thank you for all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.